0: I'm Grant Oliphant, this is We Can Be. For generations, we have relied on reporters embedded with our military to help us see the wars we fight. It is no different today as we enter the 18th year of the United States war in Afghanistan. My guest today is Carmen Gentile, a journalist who has spent the past 15 years writing from conflict zones around the world for publications including Time, USA Today, The Washington Post, and Esquire. He is the co-founder of Post Industrial Magazine. He's the author of Blindsided by the Taliban, a journalist's story of war, trauma, love, and loss. And he is also a gifted storyteller. Let's do this thing. Right. Carmen Gentile, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, I am struggling over what to ask you because you're you're too cool, you got too much going on.
1: Please don't. Uh, go. <laughs> don't go down that road. My head will get too big. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll let other people manage that, but let's start with your experience in Afghanistan and the war reporting that you've done in the book that you wrote about it called Blindsided by the Taliban. You've said the injury you received while embedded in Afghanistan serves as an entry point for discussing the deeper questions of that war. How did that day begin, the day that you were injured and that became the pivot point for the story?
1: I had been embedded with U.S. forces in eastern Afghanistan in a province called Kunar, and we were walking through a small village about three kilometers from the Pakistani border. This is a very mountainous area, very rural.
0: I think if we park on the left hand side, we might. Well, that tree might be more space. There go the rockets. All right.
1: I had spent about a week at that point with these guys, going on a lot of foot patrols, mounted patrols, and trucks. And, And so I'd gotten to know these guys in a very short amount of time fairly well. And we were walking through this small village, it was on the last day of Ramadan and these villagers were preparing for their end of Ramadan feast, Eid, and they were none too happy to see us. It was probably pretty bad judgment to be there at that time, right as they were ending mm-hmm. this long period of fasting, getting ready to celebrate. And I noticed immediately that when we walked into this village, everyone was giving us the the stink eye, what we call mean mugging. One of the first things I I noticed is that all the children had scattered, which is always a really bad sign when you're in these situations. If the kids are around, you have a pretty good idea that nothing bad's going to happen, but if the kids all take off, they know it's in the air that something's gonna happen. And so the kids were gone, and I started to get a really hinky vibe, and I was talking to these young men on the side of the road, and I was so nervous that I could barely comprehend what they were saying. And I was shooting video, and I noticed their eyes get really wide, and I heard this sound from behind me, this whooshing sound, and I turn around, and about 40 yards down the road, there's a man cradling a rocket-propelled grenade launcher, and he had fired. (laughs) No! Hey! No! Hey, are you okay?
0: No! Hey, we need a medic!
1: RPG! RPG! What the RPG that came from behind with the way you're looking over? Where you hit, sir? In the face! The ordinance clocked me in the side of the head, blinded me in my right eye, and crushed all these bones in the side of my face. I never lost consciousness. Uh, I just started to to bleed a great deal, and then um, the the paramedics came in and and helped me out, and then I was uh, airlifted I've, out.
0: I, I've watched the video of this um, because your camera kept running, right and I mean, it's hard to watch, it's actually... I've only seen it one time yeah, in my entire well, life, yeah. And I'm not watching it a second time. <laughs> I <either>. am <laughs> pretty much done with that. But as I was watching it, you actually asked these guys to get your camera.
1: Grab my gear, man, please. Yeah.
0: yeah. Is that, I, that's right, right? That is such so a freelancer I, I, right. thing to right. do. I mean, it is such a dedicated journalist thing to do. Oh,
1: I, I think it's more along the lines of I'm a freelancer. Nobody else is paying yeah. for this camera. <laughs> that thing cost me five grand out of my pocket. You better pick it up. I don't care. Yeah.
0: What was interesting, too, is that our military seemed to treat you like one of their own. With yeah. your experience? Yeah,
1: those guys, I have had a lot, at, up to that point, I had a lot of experience already embedding and I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at getting to know those guys fairly quickly. I have a pretty good idea of what, how to speak the common language. I'd say 90% of the time I'm on an, a, a small combat outpost talking to guys we're talking about sports yeah. and they all love college football. Right. So <laughs> if, I just, we have that, that common language yeah. that we can, we can speak to and so I'm pretty good at, at getting to know those guys and I think even after a short while there, I got to know these guys particularly well because I'd gone with them on every patrol and, and seen some pretty hairy things along the way up until that point and yeah, they treated me they treated me really, really well.
0: Do we know why the grenade didn't go off?
1: There are a number of theories as to why. Um, One of the reasons why it probably didn't go off is because the guy was too close. Apparently, that ordinance takes a certain number of rotations to arm, and it would be so that the person who's firing it isn't caught up in the blast, but it had not gone far enough to explode, or the fact that perhaps because it didn't strike a very hard surface, I mean, it struck the side of my head. We'll never know for sure, but it hit me, and then it hit the platoon leader, and the Elbow and then clattered to the ground. You can hear in the video there's a beat where no one knows what happened, and then they say, Are you okay? Right. Everybody was just shocked at what had happened because it never had happened. Nobody had ever even heard of something like this before. Getting yeah. shot in the head with right, a rocket. Right, right. Yeah. And that's a new one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the annals, the modern annals of modern warfare, I'm pretty sure it's one it's the only case. Yes, sir. Am I gonna lose the eye? You're not gonna lose your eye.
0: Alright, hey, look at me. Do I have the eyelid? Yeah, you're not going to lose it. Your eyelid's fine. It's right next to your eye. Hey, put that shit down, Carmen. Just all seeing right. if I can see out of hey, it. Hey, dude, it's fine, all right? Listen to me, you're fine. i seen it, shit, your eye's still baby blue, all right? Calm down. You've talked about being life-flighted out, I, you know, I guess medevaced out. What, what were you thinking? What were you seeing? Well... It- uh, it was uh, quite beautiful.
1: It's <laughs> Eastern Afghanistan is gorgeous. The mountains are really tall and you yeah. have the lower parts of the slopes have trees on them and terraced farming and just marveling at the way in which people survived there and done so for millennia. It's quite impressive and it's beautiful and I thought to myself, wow, I hope this isn't the last time that I get to be here, or the last time I get to see this and not under these circumstances. I just I was thinking to myself, I don't want this to be the defining moment of my life. I don't want this to be the end of this chapter, and and I have nothing but look forward to but desk work for the rest of my life. Right, right. That was probably right up there with, I hope I get to keep my eye. I hope I get to... Continue doing what I like to do.
0: And you were how old at this point?
1: I was 35 at the time. Okay. Yeah, I was 35.
0: 36. So, let's, so 36. let's hold that for a second, that thought of, gee, what's the rest of my life about? Part of the idea with this podcast is that we talk with people about how they get to doing what they're doing in the first place. Mm-hmm. and So I want to go back in time to the story of how you got to being a war correspondent in the first place, which... By the way, having also been a journalist at a point in my career, that's crazy. (laughs) That's crazy work. And it's amazing that you went off and did it. But how did you get there?
1: In college, I had been a philosophy major with a minor in Islamic studies, which probably makes me about as employable as your coffee cup. So I (laughs) knew that I wanted to write. A a lot of us had that, by the (laughs) way. (laughs) Right, right, right. I knew I wanted to write and I knew I wanted to uh, see the world. I had this ambition in college that didn't necessarily revolve around journalism. I had done a couple of internships here in the Pittsburgh area while I was in school at the local newspaper, uh, the Valley News Dispatch. Oh, really? Yeah, wow. yeah. I worked In there. In Tarentum? Yeah, yeah. yeah wow. because I'm from New Kensington, so okay. I've worked there. And I just really, I got a feel for it, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't sure that was what I wanted to do. And when I graduated from college with really no direction, I had a professor who was my Arabic professor, said, why don't you go to Cairo? There's this intensive language course that I know about, you can go and take it, and uh, See what, what that does for you. So I, I did. I went to Cairo and I initially planned to just stay there for two months to take this class and ended up really enjoying it. This is in 1998 and I stayed and I found a job at an English language weekly newspaper for a very little amount of money. Hmm. That's where it sort of took off. Then I moved back to the States. I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was living there and working there at the time of September 11. And so that was, I'd, you know, altered the course of my
0: career as well. So. Mm-hmm. And then the idea to actually go and cover what was happening?
1: I didn't cover the wars from the beginning. I didn't get to Iraq and Afghanistan until 2005. Mm -hmm. But the previous year, in 2004, I had been living and working in Brazil. I was based in Brazil as a correspondent for all of Latin America. Mm -hmm. And I was tasked with going to Haiti during the coup. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was going to see there or experience there. I show up in Port-au-Prince. I have no place to stay. I have no fixer. I have no translator, no anything. And the place is coming apart at the seams. To this day, some of the worst things I've ever seen were were in Haiti. Worse than Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. The brutality of the killings that were going on there, just horrific. Really, really bad. And it was, you know, men, women, children. Everything was happening. Uh, Mm. Bodies were stacked up in the hospitals. It was terrible. But I realized that I was able to function and produce stories and handle that situation fairly well. It Made me see something in myself I wasn't sure, I never knew I had. So it right. sort of yeah. like kicked my career into a different gear. And that's when I started to say, "Okay, what's going on in Iraq? What's going on in Afghanistan? And that's
0: a year later. I went to both places for the first time. And for some major publications. So you worked for USA Today. Right.
1: I worked for USA Today. I've done work for Esquire magazine. I've done some writing for them. New York Times, I did a lot of work for them stateside. And in Haiti, I did some work for them there. I've had a long career where I've been mostly freelance. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of public I've worked for almost all of them. I've worked for all the T V networks, done work for cable news and done radio and print and TV and yeah, you know, anything to make a buck.
0: And it is you know, it is a hard way to make a living, obviously. Is. And you're especially as a freelancer. Did you feel like you were doing the work you were meant to do? I feel like I was doing the work
1: that I wanted to do and I wanted to get better at doing. A lot of the reporting that I like to do from those places is, is on the ground, talk to somebody, what's going on here right now in this moment, to create a bigger picture for the folks back home to see what's happening. Show them a corner of the world, who's enduring what and under what conditions, and I really I think it's all part and parcel of the type of reporting I was doing at the Valley News Dispatch, where I would, with a notebook, sit down and talk to somebody and say, tell me your story.
0: So you, this um, relatively young, ambitious reporter who is out to tell the truth and chronicle these stories, gets literally shot in the face you survive. You're flying out. Tell us about the year that followed, the year of recovery.
1: That was a period of medical recovery and mental anguish, (laughs) some of which was of my own creation. I had four surgeries in total over a course of about eight months. And during that same period, I had a um, romantic relationship that went south. I was engaged to a woman and it all fell apart. And I thought that having been injured and having had my heart broken entitled me to do and say and be wherever i want in a very irresponsible manner right. <laughs> that was that was cavalier and and not very considerate of other people i can tell you proof positive no matter how terrible situation you endure, if you're an asshole about it, people will get tired of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that ought to be emblazoned yeah, somewhere as yeah, a, as a yeah. motto for life. I love that. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's uh, So I, I learned that lesson and realized there's only so much you can get away with, even after getting shot in the face. I realized fairly quickly during that situation that I really wanted to go back and get back to what it is that I like to do and what I think I'm pretty good at doing.
0: Why? And a lot of people would think, okay, it was crazy to be there the first time, but maybe maybe this was a warning. <laughs> right, so, right, right. So I, I had a what, lot
1: of people tell me, I don't know what the hell you're doing. I had colleagues tell me this. I had friends and family, and everyone said. What was the draw for you? Like I said, I didn't want to be chased away. I didn't want it to be that I couldn't go back because I was too scared to go back. And I was really, really scared. I just didn't want it to spend the rest of my life being that afraid. You know, those first couple months, I was on edge all the time, just really, really scared. And I think that that actually helped me be more vigilant. Not that I thought that I ever took crazy foolish risks. But I I think that it sharpened my my vigilance in some ways and made me realize, hey, you were definitely not immortal here. You you got very lucky one time. Um, You're not going to have that kind of luck again. So just be careful.
0: Was there anything different about your coverage and the stories you told when you came back? I think that I had to be
1: particularly careful not to be too generous to soldiers and marines because I these people saved my life, right. so I had to make sure that I was quoting them fairly and accurately and objectively as best I could. I, I don't want to uh, over sen- to sensationalize or glamorize right. what they do to an extraordinary degree. I just wanted to it, their story is enough.
0: One of the things we hear about our military on the ground in battle situations is that they're not in it for the glory for patriotism for any of those things. They're in it for the guy next to them. What is a war correspondent embedded with them in it for?
1: I'm in it to tell their stories and to tell the stories of the other people on the ground, the Americans, the Afghans, whoever I encounter along the way. I'm in it because I want to know what's going on. Hmm. There's a lot of talk now about don't trust the media. But in a certain extent, I I don't trust it until I... Did you
0: feel (laughs) like an enemy of the people at the time?
1: (laughs) This is this predates a lot of that that <laughs> right, recent right, right, sentiment, right, right. so I didn't have to deal with that too much. Yeah. I just have that curiosity. Yeah. I need to see it for myself to really believe what's going on.
0: What does what does fair coverage of the military look like in this day and age? It's really hard,
1: I think, and particularly in the embed situation, because you, as a journalist, see what they want you to see, right. uh, and there's a lot of things that happen that I don't ever see. I know that there are things that go on. I know guys, you know, from stories I've heard, they do, I don't want to get into it, but they do stuff that was definitely not up to regulation. Right. And um, they certainly don't do it when I'm around. And I'm not talking about war crimes. I'm talking about like smoking hash. Right, 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 right. Like things they would never, ever do yeah. in front of me or, uh, you know, f- find, get their hands on some bootleg booze somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, they They're... used to fly in pallets of beer into Vietnam. I mean, right. Vietnam, yeah. if, if the movies I've seen about Vietnam are any indication, it looked like a pretty good time sometimes.
0: <laughs> well, you even comment, you even comment in. Uh, I think it's the column you did on military humor that it's really hard to get past the faux tough guy poses that these guys would put on around you. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. how, How did you? I mean, they're human beings. They're in a horrible situation, difficult circumstances. So how did you get past that? I
1: think just being a relatable kid from Western PA, that helps. We just shoot the shit and I'm able to relate to them on a very personal level in that sense because I don't come across as somebody who's there to just dissect them, pick them apart, and walk away. I want to get to know get these guys on a, on a lot more personal level. You know, at first, they can be kind of standoffish because they're not used to strangers in their midst, and once they get past the idea that you're okay, this guy's not out to, to fuck us up in any way, they're open up because they want to talk about, hey, what, what are you watching lately? What's good on TV? What movies have you seen? Um, you know? What sports teams do you like? Stuff like that.
0: Were you surprised? I mean, you wrote about it, but were you surprised by the dark humor? Yeah, it shocked me a few times
1: that they could be so cavalier about these certain situations. I mean, I've been in firefights with guys. Rounds are winging past our heads, and they're laughing. We were on this patrol. This is a few days before I got hurt, and this young uh, Corporal Hutchins. I got to know him as a bit of a, a prankster and a jokester. We were walking along on this steep, loose rock, laden uh, mountains in Afghanistan. He just took this tumble and he just fell like ass over ankles and just <laughs> and was just lying there in the dirt. And we're trying not to laugh because there's Taliban boogeymen all around, right? So we're <laughs> everybody's just looking at. Him. Him. And he stands up and his, his helmet's all cockeyed over his eyes. And he looks at me and goes, my helmet crooked? <laughs> Just really <laughs> stupid stuff that happens on these foot patrols that, you know, take 16 hours. And you're wondering why the hell you're doing it in the first place. That kind of stuff is, 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 is what yeah. makes it tolerable and bearable to be able to laugh at it. Yeah. I had one commander tell me, it's not the guys who are laughing I worry about, it's the ones who aren't. Really? Yeah, the okay. ones who can't see the humor and in the, in the folly of these situations yeah. might have difficulties uh, in the field or back home. You have to be able to laugh because that's that's the only way to save your, your sanity and your yeah. your humanity, in my estimation. You
0: know, this is an interesting... Thing, a detail that this year's high school seniors are the first American young men and women eligible to enter the military and go fight in Afghanistan who weren't even born when that war began. You know, I think people back home sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we're not at war, but we've been at continuous war for 18 years. In your estimation, based on what you saw, is peace in Afghanistan possible? Here's my take.
1: Afghanistan has been at war in one capacity or another over the last four decades. Now, that's four decades of fighting and dying and children growing up amid this fighting and dying, not getting the quality education that they would previously. I think it would take twice as long, a period of peace, to finally come to terms, during which time, kids have to go back to school you have to try to figure out a way to have women have a real role in the country and uh, while incorporating local tradition and it's it's really difficult i think it would it would be really really hard i know it's possible because it, it, afghanistan had been that way previously during the mm-hmm. the 60s and the early 70s it was relatively calm and and you could you could visit it as a as a tourist
0: in addition to 18 years most of that time you covered the war this country has spent $6 trillion on the war effort. For $6 trillion, we could have provided free education to everybody in this country. We could have provided free health care to everybody in this country. Do you sense that our country is ever going to be able to come to grips with talking about that? Not in the
1: near future. It's too taboo a subject. It's something that I want to look at. I know in doing so, I'm going to have to suffer the slings and arrows of a lot of criticism without uh, taking a few blows from folks who, th- who claim you're unpatriotic. You can't really question the budget for the military, which is ridiculously huge. You can't question how we spend our blood and treasure overseas, as it, particularly as it pertains to the global war on terror. I think that we are in a particularly bad Time for honest talk about what's going on. I, myself, I don't care. I feel like I'm in a particularly good position to do those types of stories because <laughs> it's hard to criticize the guy that got shot in the face who's right. saying that maybe there's a different way to maybe. do it. Maybe <laughs> I, can,
0: I, I can see somebody who would say I prefer guys who don't get shot in the face. that's true.
1: I've had people on social media criticize me and say, oh, I wish the Taliban would have killed you. Really?
0: I've, oh yeah, I've had people tell yeah. me that, but far fewer than
1: the folks that have been supportive.
0: So I could I could take that. So what inspired you finally to come home and set up Post Industrial?
1: You know, it, The climate in America with the news, the 2016 election in particular, there's just been a lot of misinformation and mischaracterization of this region we call post-industrial America. It's a combination of the Rust Belt and Appalachia. And we see Pittsburgh as being the de facto capital of both those regions which intersect conveniently at Pittsburgh. Mm During the 2016 election, a lot of the folks in this region were characterized as being out-of-work steel workers or out-of-work coal miners, opioid addicted, sitting around in diners, and that's how CNN and the rest would take the pulse of of a region. By talking to, to three people in a diner and then say, oh, well, that's these people support Trump. You know, I can't count the number of stories that I saw from places like the Washington Post or Politico or New York Times from Johnstown, PA. They must all have a bureau there. I mean, there's so many times they would go there and, and that was the place where they would say, this is Rust Belt America. I mean, there's more to it, you know, especially in Pittsburgh. So much has changed in the last 40 years since the height of the steel industry or the steel industry started. It's decline. And even in the time that I've been away over the last five years, I was living in Istanbul and working a lot in the Middle East. I came back last year, and I barely recognized this place. So much had changed. This last year has been like getting to know my hometown all over again. And we're trying to, with post-industrial, re- educate people as to what this region is really all about. It's for the people inside the region and outside as well. We want to let people know that there's more to this region than than just, you know, sports and shuttered factories.
0: I'm curious, you know, the president was here recently and said to a group of workers at a factory here, you don't want to build computers with those big beautiful hands of yours. You want to dig coal and men make steel. That's a very narrow view of what of what's happening in this part I, I, of the world. Yeah. What does the president get wrong and the media get wrong about our place?
1: First of all, the height of the steel industry was probably when he was a teenager. Mm. We're talking about the president here. And by the time the 70s rolled around, when he was dodging the draft, factories were already being shuttered in this region, right? Mm-hmm. This hasn't been a predominantly steel-producing region for decades, okay? Mm-hmm. Give me a break. Those jobs, while they provided for families and they, they helped create a robust middle class that allowed the next generation to go on to school to do other jobs, those jobs are horrible. <laughs> They're, I mean, working in a steel factory, producing molten steel, it's dangerous, it's hot, it's miserable. You know, my great-grandfather worked in a coal mine, He didn't want my grandfather working in a coal mine. My grandfather was the first person to graduate from high school. Um, My dad was the first to graduate from college. They didn't want another generation to work in a mine. And the fact of the matter is only like 70,000 people in America work in the mining industry. More people work at Arby's. We should be looking for opportunities for them to work above ground, safer, cleaner, healthier for them and for their children.
0: Is your notion that post-industrial will... Help the rest of the country begin to see the region.
1: Differently. I hope so. I hope so. You know, and and it's also a learning process for me as well. Last month, and we have a story coming out. Uh, it'll come out later this month. But I was in Tennessee, and I went there to meet with and get to know the Kurdish community there. The largest Kurdish community in the United States is in. Nashville, Tennessee. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 15,000. Hmm. So I've, I've spent a lot of time with the Kurds in Iraq. I've spent time with the Peshmerga, those they're great hard fighting Kurdish forces. And I just recently spent a lot of time with them when I was covering the effort to retake Mosul from the Islamic State, some of the most horrific, terrible fighting I've ever seen. And some of the people that I met in Nashville were interpreters working with U.S. forces and had since gone on and, and gotten their visas and are making a good life in Nashville. And I was able to see a community that I got to know so well in the Middle East thrive in the uh, middle Tennessee. And it was it was eye-opening for me And I wanted to, to share that with post-industrial readers and hopefully you know folks outside the region as well.
0: You also write about veterans. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think we... We get wrong about veterans and what uh, the media gets wrong in its coverage of veterans. The
1: typical veteran narrative, unfortunately, is the uh, PTSD, perpetually distraught, unable to provide for themselves, opioid addicted, blah, 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 blah. blah. <laughs> and I happen to know a lot of veterans the vast majority of which do not have these problems mm-hmm. they're thriving and making a life for themselves you know after their military service taking the good from those experiences and applying it to their lives leadership skills problem solving skills mm-hmm. I think that we're too often seeing these stories where veterans are downtrodden, and these are serious problems. But there's the other side as well. And there's a lot of other things that really need to be addressed as it pertains to veteran health. Um, One of the, the stories that I've done a great deal of reporting on is in Afghanistan, Iraq, they had this thing called burn pits. And burn pits are where they used to get rid of all the garbage. Everything that they wanted to get rid of, you just threw it in a fire that burned constantly, 24-7, this huge fire. Every base had one. A large base, it would just be this mountain of garbage burning all the time. Just these toxic fumes coming off, and you've got a lot of servicemen and women coming back now suffering, debilitating, in some cases, life threatening and life ending respiratory illnesses. Mm. Um, it's called burn pit syndrome. And you know, these are the residual effects of, of war that are we're going to be feeling
0: for generations. Yeah. yeah, we forget about that. I have something in common with you. I started a political or a magazine when I was um, oh, yeah? younger, and and uh, congratulations on the brilliant business decision. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, was, it was hard then, and you ventured oh, into. A, so you're, you're doing it actually at a much harder time. Do you worry for the future of journalism and how are you going to fight for the place of post-industrial, you know, in this sort of weird journalism world we find ourselves in?
1: I worry about it constantly. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried all the time. I'm worried in my sleep. I worry that the darker forces of our lesser angels are going to prevail and folks are just going to completely tune out the stone-cold facts and truths that are being told by excellent journalists every single day, mm. particularly as it pertains to what's happening in the U.S. right now. You know, the president of the United States is accusing the news media of trying to tank the economy so he can't get reelected. Right. It's a really dangerous time in America. Mm. Really, really dangerous. I am very afraid. Because I know folks who were... I thought, rational, forward-thinking, intelligent people who believe this, that the news media is out to get and destroy the president and will do anything to do it, like tank the global economy. (laughs) Because you have that power. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we're always told how we're failing, and then yet we have the ability to to destroy the the largest economy in the world. I don't know how that works, but okay. So what do you tell those people? You know... You can only yell so many times, right? I mean, yeah. I, I try to let my work speak for me, yeah. and I've had people criticize me you know, to my face, mostly online. Mm. These days, nobody likes to get in your face. I can only reach those that are capable of being reached. Some people are just closed off, mm. and they're not going to be accessible because they're not open to a new idea. We're at a point in time in America where that... Mass, though it might not be the majority, it's significant enough to derail the American experiment. Mm. I'm that concerned
0: wow, well, you go to work every day on this thing that you've created to try and do your part to reverse that narrative. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. Uh, we've, we've managed to get out some pretty good stories. We're finding our groove in terms of the type of stories we want to pursue. I feel like our very first issue of the magazine, we came out of the box really hard and, and showing folks just how good we are at what we do. And the fact is that it's like we, we gave people too much. I think the magazine needs to have a little a lighter material up front just to give it so that it doesn't read like homework, like we're berating people. And, You got to know this. You got to know this. This is what's happening. And, you know, they're great stories. But Mm -hmm. I envision post-industrial in different ways than just being a source of information. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're creating a community that has these names that I particularly don't like, like Rust Belt or Appalachia. I think we call it post-industrial America, trying to give people a different identity, a positive identity, a progressive identity in terms of we're looking at this region as a place where there are innovators and artists and free thinkers and not all the best and brightest are concentrated on the coasts. So there's there's good folks here doing really interesting things, and we want to highlight that.
0: Well, I'm really grateful to you for doing what you're doing. I think at a time where we're so bitterly divided, we need to hear these stories. We need to tell our story of who we are as a region so these, exactly. these misperceptions don't get perpetuated. Carmen, the The name of this program is We Can Be. It's an incomplete sentence that we'd like you to complete. How would you complete that sentence? We can be
1: better. There are people who are looking to the future, concerned about the future, trying to make a better future. And we all need to to work on that together. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to illustrate that there are some really interesting things happening here and give this region an identity that it can be proud of and show to the rest of the world that really great things are happening here and we're striving to be better. That's great.
0: Carmen, thanks so much. Carmen spoke of the ways we spend our blood and treasure overseas in regards to the global war on terror. It is through the words and images of embedded journalists like him that we can even have a glimpse of what that means. I am glad that he is here to speak truth to what he calls the darker forces of our lesser angels, and that he is using talents to tell the honest, moving stories of our post-industrial time, He is helping us see our world, both in our backyard and around the globe. And we are grateful for his frank and artful voice.